0: All right, today we don't have a particular Bible passage, which is kind of strange for me. Usually I'm very expository, I guess, but today's a little more topical. But I think it's important if I can get my lesson on the screen first, on my screen. I'm still rolling with the computer, which is like weird for me. But anyway, silly question. Since we're getting to that time of year, what's your favorite holiday movie? The Wonderful I knew someone was going to say that. That's about number two for me. That's a Christmas Eve special. What else? Elf. Oh, that's number three. Miracle on 34th Street. She likes Santa a whole lot, huh? Oh, oh the cartoon. Yeah. All those cartoons. In- In- yes, incredible. I guess I grew up on those. Santa Claus. The Year Without Santa Claus. That that was tough. though. Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, I love them all. You'll never guess my favorite. I'll give like two guesses. You'll never guess my favorite. No. No, it's not a Christmas movie. It's a Thanksgiving movie. (laughs) Nope. Nope. This one right here. Y'all see this movie? Isn't this the best holiday movie ever? This is my absolute favorite. This movie is called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Thanksgiving movie. Just so you know. But it was it was made in 1987. Right there, you see Steve Martin's on the left, and John Candy, one of my favorites. He passed way too early, is on the right. And the uh, the, the characters are Neil and Dell, which they're two. Polar opposite characters. And Neil is this corporate marketer in New York trying to get home for Thanksgiving. Dell is a shower ring salesman trying to get home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Which well, is really strange. They're two complete strangers. They're nothing alike. Really features this insane, if you've seen the movie, misadventure uh, that splits the two apart and then brings them back together and splits them apart, brings them back together over and over again. It goes from, as you guessed it, a plane to a train to a rental car, to a milk truck, just to get home for Thanksgiving. And every escapade ends up in disaster, almost every time. You can think about the car catching on fire and burning, and they're still driving it down the road. But it's mostly a part to this guy, Dell, who is really clumsy and arrogant and annoying. But what's cool is as they go through this, this ringer of an extraordinary travel complication of chaos, a really peculiar Friendship starts to form as they butt heads. And really the connection between them is made because they are both seeking something. They're trying to get home for Thanksgiving, to get back to the family and uh, to those they love. And Neil is missing from his family table, and he's really concerned about that. And the twist at the end of the movie, I'll go and spoil it. Y'all care if I spoil it? Go watch it anyway. The twist at the end of the movie is that Dale is actually homeless, and he's a widower. It's really sad, and his wife has been passed for eight years, and he has failed to cope with that fact until the movie concludes, and he hurts because of it, and that's why he's he's on this crazy expenditure where you know with no money he's just making it. Uh, what well, it's a really fun, funny, lighthearted movie that takes on a much deeper sentiment that I think we can all relate with. Sometimes, if you're if you're on travel and you're like I'm trying to get back to the family for Thanksgiving, and the relation really is this that there is there's something or there's someone missing in our lives. There's an empty seat at the dinner table or there's a possibly an empty person at the dinner table, and both are equally devastating. They both are painful, and it hurts, and it's not easy, and it's not supposed to be easy. For the past few weeks, I guess eight weeks, we looked at one of the central connecting points of the Bible, right, which is death, that, that it ties the whole Bible together in a one true infallible narrative that 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 features the powerful story of God's plan to to reveal himself, to reconcile himself to man, and to restore earth back to what it used to be. And in the beginning, everything was good. But in Genesis 3, our sin produced death. And what happens is it fragments our relationship with God, right? And it doesn't just fragment our relationship with God. It fragments our relationships with each other. The fact that we don't have perfect, harmonized relationships is because we first don't have a relationship with God that's, that's in harmony. But through the Bible, we find God's fingerprints. And through the history of mankind, we see Him working. We see Him going through the course of our finite history as he works to restore and renew all things. And today is sort of epilogue on this because I really wanted to do a lesson about this as we approach the holiday season, really did, because we're gonna be around those we love and I know noth- nothing's perfect. And so we may love some people, but sometimes we don't always like them. There's a difference. And, but it, overall, the holidays is a great time for us uh, that I really enjoy. But we gotta be real, right? It's not easy for all of us, especially for older This is not an easy time for all of us. In fact, there really are certain things that make this time terrifying, that make it emotionally exhausting, and make it painful. But what we have to learn is we have to deal with our lost loved ones. We have to cope with that empty chair. We have to cope with the fact that there's an empty person in that chair. And there are three things we must do in order to do so. And I hate to give you some silly 10-step process. And I'm not even giving you a three-step process. These are really just basic things that we have to do as human beings in order to cope with pain, with the pain of a lost loved one. This is an encouragement from the Word of God. This is not some psychology experiment. I promise you that. And I want to say that it's not how it's meant to be, right? Death is the enemy. Physical and spiritual death, if you want to separate them, is not how it's meant to be. I think about it, and God did not create life to include pain and crying and loss. That's not how he created it originally. That's that's on us. The truth is, is that that's still the world we live in. And although the difference in our lives as Christians is this, is that we have a God instead who sustains us and who promises a hope ahead of us and a future that does not have these things included in them. And so the process of dealing with a lost loved one cannot be simplified. It's complicated. And I'm no psychologist. I'm no licensed counselor. I'm not a trained pastor. I don't go to seminary. I don't do all of that, but I'll say the Word of God is good enough for an answer. And i got to say, too, I never felt more unqualified for a sermon, but I'm going to give it anyways because, I, like I said, the Word of God offers what we need. And there are three essential things, like I said, that we must do to process death and to not avoid the pain of loss. We can't avoid it. How to, how to endure it? That's what we want to look at. Because after all, we've all heard this, that faith does not make things easy. It makes things possible. And that's so true. And there are three things that I want to see in this. Three Gs. We must come to grips. We must grieve and we must grasp. Grips, grieve, and grasp. And there are three types of loved ones that I want to look at that we must exercise those three Gs with. And the beautiful thing about it is that if we process... Let me rewind. The beautiful thing is is that the process dealing with lost loved ones is the exact same for every type of lost loved one. It's the exact same. It's phenomenal. And the first one is this, it's grips. We must face the reality of death. I mentioned earlier about Dell in this movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And there was one thing wrong with him the entire movie that was not revealed until the end. And what was wrong with him is what he was bottling inside himself. He was hiding himself and he was hiding from others the reality that his wife was dead and that he was struggling with that and it was causing inner turmoil inside of him. And the simple reality about most of us and about death is that most people don't want to face the reality of death that is before them. And last week, I mentioned that most people in this world do not want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to walk among death. It's cruel. It's no fun. It's traumatic. But the truth is, is that just ignoring it, is the worst thing to do. You cannot do that as a Christian. You don't ignore the fact that you're sick. You must do something about your sickness. You must take on the giant. Otherwise, you'll be in worse condition. You will lose yourself if you bottle up the pain and fear. All right. If you bottle up the pain of death and if you bottle up the fear of death, you have to come to grips with the reality of death. The first reality that we must come to grips with is the loss of our physically dead loved ones who are with God. We have to come with that, the empty seed, I say. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Death exists because we exist, because we polluted the earth. We brought death into a world that did not originally have it, but we must recognize that reality, and we must own our mistake, right? We must recognize that it is simply the state of the world as it is. The promise of Genesis 3, though, is that the world is under a curse, and the curse of sin is death, and every man must die. He says, to dust you have been made, to dust you shall return. The grave awaits us all, in case you didn't know. We as Christians must be the first to accept this. We have to be bold. We have to accept this. We don't ignore, we acknowledge, right? We must be the tough ones. And I'll say this, the greatest courage in a person is exemplified when that person knows the great enemy that stands before them and they still stand up to that enemy that stands in front of them. It's called being bold. We have to be bold in the face of death. We've all lost people. We have lost spouses. We have lost a brother or a sister or multiple. We've lost mom and dad. We've lost, some of us may have even lost children, which is the worst of all. And it hurts, but you cannot ignore that hurt. You must deal with it. You must accept the fact that they are gone and they cannot come back to you. When death claims a victim you love, the best thing for you to do is to accept it. Proverbs fourteen eight says, "The wise man looks ahead." The wise man looks ahead, but the fool attempts to fool himself and not face facts. And the second, coming to grips, the second type of lost loved one that we have to deal with is not recognizing the empty chair, but the empty person that may be in that chair. I'm talking about people who do not know God. I'm not talking about the physically dead. I'm talking about the spiritually dead. Same thing applies. Romans six twenty three: For the wages of sin is death. Every single one of us in our natural state are in sin and we're in our trespasses. None are good. None are righteous. No, no one. Everybody falls short of the glory of God. We all know that we all have loved ones who are not Christian. I guarantee it. And just because you love them does not make them any less condemned than they are in the state that they're in. Just because you love them doesn't necessarily help. You should love them saying is that's not going to solve their problem. But you need to face the reality of that. Death reigns in a man if he is not regenerated by the power of the Word of God, if he is not filled with God's Holy Spirit. And nothing in this world, as you know, before you were a Christian, nothing is worse in this world to live a life without God. And for some of us, nothing is worse now than seeing the people we love living without the God that we get to live with in perfect relationship, in harmony. We hate seeing empty people. We want them to have what we have. And if we can face that daunting reality we do have loved ones who are without Christ, then we can move on to the next step. So the first step is don't ignore. Come to grips with it. We can't get anywhere if we turn a blind eye. The second one is this. It's grief. We have to weep. Christians have to weep. Once we come to grips, we can come to grief. Once we have accepted reality, we can administer mourning to that reality. We are creatures. In case you didn't know, we are creatures who are supposed to cry, who are supposed to mourn and grieve and agonize and and well over death. That's who we are. That's what we're made to be. We are created in the image of God, a God who also cries and weeps and agonizes and mourns. We live in a creation itself that cries and weeps and mourns and agonizes and wells over death. That's what you're created to do. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, there's a time for everything. There's a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. And there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend. It's natural. It's preordained by God for you to do these things. There are seasons in life that you must participate in mourning because we need it. If we're dealing with the loss of a past relative or a friend, we have to grieve. You can look into the mental, emotional, scientific, psychological, or biblical viewpoint, and you will come to that conclusion. Science supports this. Psychologists support this. You have to grieve. Take it the other way. You need to grieve for those who are lost as well. Not just those who are dead, but those who are lost, who are not living the abundant life that Christ promised who are seeking deeper and deeper into sin or into addiction, and they're hurting themselves. You have to grieve for it. You have to be broken over that. You have to be hurt. In John 11, 11, if that's where you want to go, if you can go there. I guess that's our main Bible passage. I just realized that. But we'll be in John chapter 11, and we're going to touch on this lightly. This is about Jesus and Lazarus, Mary and Martha. In John chapter 11, there are three close loved ones to Jesus, the sisters Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And in this account, uh, word is sent to Jesus that the one he loves is sick. And what happens in this story is that for some reason, even when he's told that Lazarus, a close family friend of his, is sick, he does not come running, and actually, actually, Lazarus dies. In John chapter 11, verses 21 through 22, this is what Martha says to Jesus. She says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. When Mary talks to Jesus in verse 32 through 37, she says, when Mary, book says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. They asked Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. In verse 35, it says that Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them were saying, Could he have not opened the eyes of the blind man? Or could not he who did open the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? What I want to see here first, and I'll get into the practical theology later. We have a high priest who identifies with us, as Hebrews says. Who hurts with us. The greatest man to ever walk the earth hurts. The most powerful man to ever walk the earth hurts. God sits and weeps. No other religion in the world will tell you that God weeps, that God mourns, that God agonizes over death. But that's the fact. That God weeps over death. He weeps over his enemy, and his whole mission is to destroy it, but he still cries over it. The Bible says that. Hosanna hurts, that Christ cries. And because, I'll say this, because the fact of the matter is, he cries because it's not how it's supposed to be. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm getting confused with my words. But he cries because that's not how it's supposed to be. Not with us, not with himself. And I think he's even crying because he's realizing what's in his pretty close to near future. His own death, His own death and the people that would kill him. But you have to know this. You have to grieve. You must realize that this is not the way it's supposed to be, and we must grieve for the past, and we must grieve for the walking dead on earth right now. Just in case, though, you need to grieve properly, which leads us into our third G, which is grasp. We must take hold of our hope. We talked about this all last week. And in a sermon following the events of 9-11, which was a lot of death, which was a lot of people who perished unjustly at the hands of, you know, godless people. There's a man, his name is Tim Keller, he's a preacher in New York City, and he followed this terrible event with an incredible sermon based on this same chapter in John 11. The sermon was titled, Truth, Tears, Anger, and Grace. And within this sermon, he said this. He says, on the one hand, you can try to avoid grief. You can try to avoid weeping. But that will either make you hard and inhuman, or else... It will erupt later on you and bite you and devastate you the other mistake is to grieve without hope the love and the hope of god and one another has to be rubbed into our grief the way you rub salt into meat or it will go bad your grief is either going to make you bleaker and weaker or it can make you far wiser and good and tender depending on what you rub into it that's what we're here to do he says we are not just here to weep but to rub hope into our weeping, to rub hope and love into our weeping. Proper grief is done in love and in hope. We love those who have gone to pass on from this life. We love those who are lost in this life and will be lost in eternity if they do not meet Christ. We hope for those who pass. We hope for those who are lost. That's exactly what we said last week. We have hope. How do we cope with suffering? How do we cope with persecution? How do we cope with all the bad things in the world? How do we cope with the fact that the people we love most have seemingly been stolen away from us. We hope. We hope. You recognize the empty seat, like we said. For those who have passed, that were united with Christ in His death, we know that they will be united with Him in His resurrection, right? That first person we must grieve for. First Thessalonians four thirteen through 15 This is the most famous passage for this, this concept, for this topic. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, fallen asleep in him. And Paul says elsewhere that we will not precede their own bodily resurrection. We don't precede those who have died before us. The saints who have gone before us actually get the fruit the fruit of their labor, and the reward even before we do, which is really incredible when Paul says that. And what it is is it's a resurrection into a new heavens and new earth that we looked at last week. I won't go 40 minutes into that because you know what it is. But like I said, they are closer to the reward that we are. So we don't worry and we should not fear. We should not also ignore that pain, but we accept it. We grieve over it and we remember and we realize the hope to come that they're really not dead at all, right? Right? They're really not dead at all. They are more alive than they ever have been before. That's the hope. They are with the God who saved them and who will redeem their mortal body from the grave. And for you, to them, to your past loved ones who are in God, who are in Christ, in heaven, it's not much of a goodbye. It's actually a see you later. I want you to think about that. It's not that far. Psalm 147, verse 3, it says, He heals the brokenhearted, and He binds up their wounds. And I want to say, He really does heal, and He does bind, and He raises. In John 11, if we'll go back, after Martha comes to Jesus stricken with grief, He says what? When she says, Lord, He has died. He has died. I don't know what to do. I know that you can do something. He doesn't say, I'll raise him from the dead right now. You know what He says? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what He says, and He did it. And He rose Lazarus. And really, He rose Lazarus, with the hope that he would rise and that one day he would actually raise Lazarus from the dead, from his first death. All right? We have a God who weeps, but we have a God who raises people from the dead, and that's our hope. But for those who are dead in sin, does the same hope still remain? Is it the same hope or is it not for those who are dead in sin currently walking this earth? And you ask that. Let me to ask you something. Don't you remember who you used to be? Don't you know who you are now? Doesn't God bring dead things back to life today? That He brings empty shells of people and He fills them with conviction, He fills them with the Holy Spirit, and He saves them. It would be an insult to the God who saved you to ever think that He could not save my lost mom or dad, He could not save my brother, He could not save my friends. You have to hold out hope. You have to hold out hope. No one ever saved themselves after all, right? Right? You don't hope that they'll save themselves so that you can save them. You hope in the God who is powerful and omnipotent and omniscient enough to save them. The only timeless and all-powerful God who can do that. And from what I see in my Bible, did not God take murderers like Paul and turn them into a man who changed the world? The reason Western civilization is even here is because of men like Paul. Or what about Peter who denied Christ before Christ went to the cross? And then Peter would go on, To his own cross, preaching the gospel, God turned sinners into saints. Take hope in that. Romans 5 says this, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. Most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us in this. He sent Christ Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. Still sinners. Lost loved ones who are still sinners, Christ died for them. And he says, you know what? They can be made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, just as he has saved us from God's condemnation. I mentioned earlier, I need to slow down a little bit. (laughs) That's the second one. There are lost loved ones who are gone to be with the Lord, and then there are lost loved ones who are still alive with us at the Thanksgiving table, for example. But I said that there were three types of lost loved ones and I have to address the elephant in the room if you're thinking about it, but it's addressed in the same way, by coming to grips, by grieving, and by Mm -hmm. coming to grasp hope. What about those who are not just dead in sin, but those who have died in sin without obeying the gospel? That's the toughest question to ask. That's the toughest question to answer. That's the hardest thing to deal with, but what do we do? What do we do with this fact that no one wants to confront, that no one wants to come to grips with? We can't ignore it. You cannot ignore this. Christ mourned over Jerusalem before it killed him. And he knew that many of those people were not going to repent and believe in his death and his burial and his resurrection. He knew that, and he still mourned for them. He still weep for them. So I think we still need to do that, too. We need to grieve for those who have dead, who have died in sin. Not just dead in sin, but who have died in sin. And i got to say this, too. In the end, we do not know the final standing of every person in this world. Even if you think someone was dead in sin and died in sin, you don't know for sure. We cannot know for a fact, but we can make a good estimation still. And in that good estimation, if we're being honest and realistic, we know that there are many who will die and will face the judgment throne to be damned. It's true. What do you do? What do you do? Same as all the rest. You grieve in hope. And you ask, hope, how can I have hope in that? That someone died and is going to live in eternal condemnation. How do I deal with that? Because it's not joyful. But even though it's not joyful, it is just. It's just. It's right. You don't deserve the freedom. You don't deserve the justification. You deserve the condemnation as much as they do, actually. It's a fact. We have to be satisfied by God's decision because it is right. But more, we should take hope in this, that when we are judged, we are looked at as innocent because God judged Christ in our place, and that's the truth, and we gain the victory over death because of it. We raise and we have the inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, 4 says, we looked at this last week, "...he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former old things have passed away." I don't think you have the slightest knowledge of what this actually means because we've never experienced it. We've tasted it, but we've never fully experienced it. What I want to tell you is that God's new thing that is coming, which is the new heavens and the new earth, when heaven comes down to earth, is that the very thought of those who have died in sin will not be here. You will not even know it. I don't think so. How could there be anything bad or something that terrorizes your heart? when you're saved, into God's eternal kingdom, what I mean in the new heavens and the new earth, you won't know. And that's even kind of weird and awkward in and of itself, but you won't know. You won't know it. That's hard to wrestle with. I get it, but because it's new and because it's foreign to us, it's hard. But we have to face it because it's a fact, and we have to grieve over it, and we have to grasp hope in the fact Let me wrap it up here. There are plenty of ways to be hurt in life. And I've talked with numerous people. I was talking to Duke the other day, and he mentioned to me how his mom has to struggle through this time period of the season, of the holidays, because this is the hardest time for his mom because she doesn't have her mom with her anymore in this what used to be special time of the year. For me, it's my own grandparents' It's the hurt I have for my grandpa who doesn't have my grandma anymore. Or it's my Mimi who doesn't have my pipa anymore. And the holidays are a huge force. And this is especially hard to deal with. And it's not easy for either of them to ignore the fact that they are gone. At like Thanksgiving and at Christmas, there's the constant reminder the person they love most in the world is gone and I haven't sorry it's not easy to watch my own parents to walk unfaithfully in God's commands they don't understand what they're missing out on and I know that there are many of us in the same boat here we have lost sons and lost daughters and grandchildren and brothers and sisters and friends and co-workers and we all have loved ones who did not die in the Lord, but who died without the Lord. And that's the most painful reality we have to face. But the solution remains all the same. We have to come to grips with the truth of death and we have to grieve over it. And we have to grasp hope in it. If we have not hope now, and if we do not have hope in the eternal future, we are the people to be most pitied in the world, like Paul says. But if we do carry out the hope of eternal life, we are the people to be most envied. In this world. I'll end with this. I'll end with a blessing from number six, and then we'll pray. And I'll say, may the Lord bless you and keep you in, the si- in this season, and may He keep your loved ones in this season. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and your loved ones in this season, and may the Lord turn His face and smile towards you and your loved ones in this season, and may He give you peace. Let's pray. My fathers in heaven, Lord, all glory and honor is to you always, Lord. Uh, Thank you for this church here and the comfort we bring each other, Lord, knowing that we have this family of believers to comfort each other in a time period that is hard for a lot of us. Help us to carry out the hope that you have for us, Lord, that it's okay to grieve, it's okay to cry, because, Lord, you are a God who grieves and a God who cries. But, Lord, just as you had hope, Even when Christ had hope before his death and his burial and his resurrection, so we are to have hope in the same way, God, and to carry it out into our lives. We thank you and we bless your name, Lord, and all things are worthless compared to knowing you and the power of your resurrection, Lord. And we haste the day that that the fullness of that resurrection comes true. Lord God, be with us and protect us and guide us. pray this song in Jesus' name. Amen.